It's an honor to be with you. I praise God for the opportunity and thank you for taking the time for joining us. We had a an introduction slash uh, exposure to the subject of of Islam and how as Adventists we have been equipped not only by belief and understanding but also divinely appointed time to be able to be here as a body, as a church throughout the world, to be able to reach out to the Muslim communities around the world. And what I was trying to pretty much bring home yesterday is that we Adventists, once we come across Muslims, or I, let me reverse it, as soon as Muslims come across Adventists, the first thing that they notice, you're different. The way you do things is different. Even your brand of Christianity is different. And so one of the things that we need to understand is make sure no matter what we do at the end of the day, we maintain and preserve our uniqueness. And the uniqueness in many fronts is not so popular in evangelical America. But we're not here to be popular. We're not here to be, you know, readily, warmly welcomed into the mainstream. That's why, you know, in so many fronts, even the message brought to the Adventist church, at times it need, it, it's going to confront, it's going to be faced with some form of mental opposition. What do you mean to tell us that this religion is kosher? What do you mean to tell us, Pastor, that this religion is by from God? And so what is happening is, we try to do as much as possible to bring this to the paradigm, to the thinking of the Adventist body, first and foremost. Um, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that yesterday and today's program will not be the end of your exposure to this. And just remember one thing. I firmly believe Ellen White is the prophet for the last days. She said, the closing work of the Great Commission will be accomplished by lay people. Not people who lay down, but by lay people. People who don't wait to have an accolade or three names or digits after their name to be able to work for the Lord because God has brought all these people to our shores. And it's incredible that I see sometimes the transformation among our people. I'll give you one case in point. I was in one of the southern states uh, a couple years ago and very large Adventist church. One of the attendees, he sat through the whole presentation, the whole training, and so forth. But in the middle of, of my training, he couldn't contain himself. He was a high-ranking elder in the church also. He got up from way back in the auditorium as I was speaking. From the corner of my eye, I was noticing that there's a man walking up to the podium. He came up to me, and he grabbed my microphone. And as I'm in God's house, this is what he said. Why do you insist that we have to love these people? Why can't we just give them a Bible track and be done with it? And the auditorium was, <gasps> you know, the gasping and all that. So he went on and went on and went on. 
And then when he was done, I got my microphone back. I said, my brother, I have a mandate. And my mandate says, by this they shall know you're my disciples. If you give them a Bible track and kick them out of your room or not see them ever again. The Lord said, if you love them, then you're my disciples. Until then, uh, I have to follow this mandate. When we see him face to face, you bring your case up to him. Why did we have to love him? I left that church. It was, it was kind of interruptive, but the congregation, there was a large pe- group of people, so they kept me going, so we, we finished the, f- the training and so forth. I left, and I went back home. Maybe a couple months later, I began to receive emails from this individual that I had no idea who this person is. But somewhat, they had gotten my personal email, and he was sending me emails. And one of the emails said, I think I owe you an apology. I don't know who this is. So I forwarded to, to our management, and I said, would you please help me sort this out? Where is this coming from? I don't know. You know, it was one of those emails, first name, and then, you know, some made-up thing in the middle. So I couldn't tell who it is. Turns out that it was this individual. He's a very wealthy member of the Adventist church. He's in real estate. He's a, he's a very successful real estate broker. His email said, about two months ago, right about when you left our church, a colleague who happens to be an Iranian Muslim woman, a very successful broker, real estate broker, challenged me to the core of my faith and belief. And I couldn't bounce back. And I had never been so like challenged or humiliated and all this stuff. I went back to our church and I rented out your DVD. I've watched it eight times. I owe you an apology. This Muslim woman and her husband and her children are now coming to our house every Wednesday night and we're studying each other's religion. And every time I say this, I get goosebumps because the man said, my paradigm has shifted. Now, sometimes you can be in a theory class and things might be challenging or somewhat you can relate to or somewhat you can kind of embrace it. But when the Lord brings a Muslim to your path and he will bring it to your path. If you believe Ellen White, I'm going to quote her. She says, God allows you to hear the truth because he is planning to bring the people who want to hear that truth your path. So just keep one thing in mind. The Adventist message, as we discussed yesterday, is resonating strongly with Muslims who come across and the first thing that they notice that you're different. And as soon as they begin to kind of go a little, you know, beneath the surface, they realize, wait a minute, you're Muslims. You know, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do that. We don't do this, we don't do this, and all this. So we've never seen a Christian, one Muslim man said, I've never seen a Christian that doesn't eat pork. So if you don't eat pork, you're not a Christian. We have taken all these for granted. I was in a very, very large church somewhere in America. 
four services in a row I had to speak. The between the first service and the second service, there was Sabbath school. And so I finished the sermon in the morning, and time for Sabbath school, I wanted to attend one of the Sabbath schools, and there were like 20 different Sabbath, class, Sabbath school classes. So I asked the pastor, I said, which one do you think I should attend? He says, you come with me. So he took me to a somewhat of a progressive class. So I sat there, it was a circle. I sat in, and everything stopped. All the talks and the conversations stopped. And I said, go on, sorry to interrupt. The Sabbath school teacher on the class said, well, actually, we're analyzing your sermon for our class. <laughs> I said, I won't make any comments. I love to hear what you thought. Love to hear your response. Talked to yeah, maybe about 10 minutes, and the, and the Sabbath school teacher told me, what is wrong with eating bacon with my breakfast every once in a while? Because this is what I do. I said, my brother, if there was a time to pick on, to pick up bacon eating, it's not now. Trust me, it's not now. I said, 1.7 billion is the minimum of the harvest that you and I can reach as Seventh-day Adventists. These people respect us, are beginning to respect us. One Muslim man said, since I see what goes in your mouth is clean, therefore what comes out of it is worth listening to. <laughs> I said, why do I want to burn this bridge, my brother? I said, isn't there any clean meat out there? Are we that desperate that you have to pick up the junk of the junk? But what I'm telling you, what I'm sharing with you is this. If there was a time to shine as Adventists, it's now. If there was a time to be a vocal, visible, accessible Adventist, it's now. What we'll do this afternoon will be in three sections. The first section, we're going to go to the Bible. By no means this is exhaustive, but we're going to discover some things in the Bible that, in my humble opinion, has been overlooked for way too long. And so it will give us this large perspective as to what God is thinking about this whole situation. But we're going to go to the Bible. Second section, which is challenging to some Adventists, we're going to discover, we're going to read some passages from the Quran, the Islamic holy book. It is the same book. Some of you asked me, you're pronouncing it differently. Is it Quran or is it Quran? Quran, Quran. We don't have the letter in English. So the closest we have in the alphabet is Q. So it's the same book. I'm just pronouncing it the Arabic way. We're going to go to the Quran, and we're just going to discover three things. What does the Quran say about the Bible? What it says about the prophets of the Bible? And what it says about Jesus? Okay? So notice I said, I didn't say, let's go to Islam and see what it says about this. this. We're going to go to the Quran, to the source of Islam. Why do I say this? Most Islam around the world does not follow what's in the Quran. Does that remind you of another group of people? <laughs> Muslims die for the Quran. They kill for the Quran, but they just don't read the Quran. Okay? And there's numerous reasons to contribute this. So again, I'm emphasizing. I am not discussing the religion of Islam, but the source of the religion, which is the Quran, the scripture, or the Bible of Muslims. What it says about the Bible, 
what it says about the prophets of the Bible and what it will say, what we will discover, what it says about Jesus. Then the last section, very short, it's a very unpleasant section for me. What are the consequences when the Advent message is missing from the world of Islam? What are the consequences? What happens when the Advent message is missing? Okay? In between the sections, as time permits, we'll open the floor for question and answers. So if you have questions, hold on. Let me finish the section. Maybe during that se section, you will get your answer of the question. So be patient. I'm from the Middle East, and sometimes I have to tell the Western people, be patient. Uh, in between the sections, we'll open the floor. So keep your questions. Whatever questions come to your mind that has been occupying your mind, as long as I can do it physically, humanly, for me to be possible, I will respond to it. This is the opening line of every chapter in the book of the Quran. And I will explain how the Quran reads for us to have a better perspective. And it reads, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which in Arabic translated, in the name of God, most compassionate and most merciful. So this is how the Quran, every chapter of the Quran begins. The Quran is not made up of books, chapters, and verses. I'll say this from the get-go, when we get to the part, so you will have some kind of a background. It, there is no narrative in the Quran. There is no chronology in the Quran. With the exception of the first chapter, it begins from the longest chapter, goes all the way to the shortest. Okay? So this is, a, this is an overall construct of the book. But let's go to the Bible first, and let's see what we need to find out. According to the scriptures, the descendancy of Abraham pretty much branched out into two. Column to the left, the Bible describes what we call the children of the East, or the Bible calling Beni Misrach, in Hebrew, the sons of the East, or the sons to the East. Who were they? Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Then when Sarah passed away, Abraham married Keturah. She gave him six more sons, and we'll discover some of those names a bit later on. And from this line of descendancy, God sent messengers to Israel. What's another word for messenger? Prophet. Okay? So this is very critical, that from that line of descendancy, God also sent messengers or prophets to the nation of Israel, and we'll discover who they were. Column to the right is the most familiar to the Christian world. Sarah gave birth to Isaac, and everything ensuing from Isaac is what is very familiar to us. God sent prophets from that line of descendancy. But in general, according to the scriptures, Abraham's descendants separated into these two, the children of the East and the children of Hebrews or Israel. Genesis 16 is the groundwork, the framework, upon which we're going to build this source and this material. Genesis 16 has the following highlights. According to Genesis 16, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. According to the scriptures, did the firstborn son have a special rank among the siblings? According to the scriptures, he took the cream of the crop. He was the first. He had the last word in decision making. He got the best or the most of the inheritance. So the special 
siblings, special rank among the siblings, needs to be respected if we want to understand who Ishmael is. So according to the scriptures, he is the firstborn to Abraham. The second point that this chapter highlights, the reason why Hagar and Ishmael left the house of Abraham was because the Bible says it was not a place to live for Sarah and Hagar. Abraham had to make the painful decision to let go of Abraham and Ishmael, and that's the reason, according to the scriptures, why she left the house of Abraham. Now, this is extremely critical. According to the Bible, God sent an angel, most probably Gabriel, to name Ishmael before Ishmael is born. Do we have other instances in the Bible? Do we have some examples? Jesus, John the Baptist, Samuel, did they have, what is the reason? What is the prime reason that they were named before birth? They had a special mission to fulfill. The first time a child is named before birth is Ishmael's case. So according to the scriptures, he is named before birth because God had a special, has a special mission for Ishmael. All right? Can we be honest and confess we haven't looked at it from this perspective? Okay? Now look at the rest of it. What is the definition of the word Ishma or Ishmael? God listens. Ishma in Hebrew means listens. Third person listens. El stands for God. When did God, the angel of the Lord, give this name to her for her son? This is the first time when she fled the house of Abraham. She was well advanced in pregnancy. She was destitute. She did not want to go back. She was forsaken. She's in the middle of the desert. The angel of the Lord, which we discussed was Christ, appeared to her and said, God has not forsaken you. In fact, you will name your son Ishmael because God has heard your cry and your plea. So keep this in mind. God was very much in tune and in connection with Hagar. Something else about Hagar that blew me away. When you look, when you read Genesis 16, 17, and 18, which I strongly recommend you do those three chapters, you discover one thing. Hagar, even though the Bible says she's a slave woman, yet she has way broader and deeper insight as to who God is rather than Sarah. Case in point, when she was met by the angel of the Lord in the middle of the desert, she even named that place, Laharoi, God has seen me, I have seen him who sees me. All right? But when the same God appeared to Abraham and Sarah in front of the tent, do you remember this, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? That same God told Abraham, by this time next year, your wife will be pregnant. Unlike Hagar, Sarah laughed, ridiculed. And when the Lord appeared, came close to her and says, what are you laughing at? She says, I didn't laugh. I didn't, I didn't do, no, uh, you did. After all, I'm God. I know what you do. <laughs> but when you compare it, when you contrast it with Hagar, this Egyptian slave woman, she has such respect for God that she even named that place, God sees me. 
Okay, So keep these in mind according to the scriptures is what we have. Now the next point that this chapter highlights, we'll develop a bit later on, God promises a perpetual mercy to the descendants of Ishmael. Okay, This is the groundwork, this is the framework upon which we're going to build. This passage I read with you yesterday, the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar this, at this time. Ishmael is between 15 to 16 years of age. They have left the house of Abraham for good. The angel of the Lord, Christ Jesus, appeared to her, told her, I will make of him a great nation. And the word great, gadol in Hebrew, has profound definitions, mighty, numerous, loud, large in number. And we saw how it came to pass with the appearance of Muhammad on the scene and look at what happened to that promise that the Lord made to Hagar 4,000 years ago. No matter what has happened on the world scene for the last 4,000 years, the Lord is keeping his promise. Now, I, had a po I, I posed a question yesterday, and I will address it for today. Could the religion that this came with, this promise came with, could this religion be part of the promise? Could Islam be part of that promise? So this is something that we have to reckon with. We can't say God blessed them aside from the religion. The religion is what brought this numerous, mighty, loud appearance to this promise. And so we Christians, we believers in Christ, we need to reckon with this. Does the religion of Islam also play a part in this promise? And where did he settle? Ultimately, according to the Bible, Paran, and that is where Paran is, in the northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia. Uh, what was God's plan for the children of Abraham? According to the scriptures, we have these three pretty much sticking out as most obvious. Number one, God wanted the descendants of Abraham to preserve truth. The concept of truth, according to the scripture, is pretty much summed up. Knowing the true God constitutes the whole body of truth. Now, Ishmael is about 15 to 16 years of age when he leaves the house of Abraham. All right? It's 15, 16 years long enough for a father to teach some basics to his son. Does a 16-year-old know how to pray? Does he know how to behave in a house of worship? Does he know not to worship idols? Okay. Now he leaves the house of Abraham. What happened to the things he learned from Daddy, Ab Daddy Abraham? Is it possible that he took it with him? All right. Years later, now he has his own family, his own children. What does he teach his children? What do you think? What he learned from Daddy Abraham, right? I mean, this is all plausible. These are, I mean... It makes sense. It's common sense approach. Is it going to be the same thing that Isaac would be teaching his children? Somewhat, because there is over 500 mile difference now, years in between. Obviously, things are not going to be exactly the same thing, but you could see the traces. You could see the traces in between the two. The second point that the Bible highlights and I gave you a couple examples yesterday. God's plan for the children of Abraham was to collaborate, 
partner with each other, not to kill each other. So we, we all have to admit to one fact. Did God's wishes or have God's wishes come, come to pass or has the enemies? In who, have the follow, who have the descendants of Abraham followed mostly in your opinion? God's provisions or what Satan has pretty much? And so what we are seeing as Christians, we are seeing this animosity and the worst thing we can do is take sides. And we have taken sides. The church should be the author of peace and of reconciliation because the message that God has given us is not, God's plan was not, okay, you're not the son of the promise. He is the son of the promise. I'm going to be supporting him. Tough. Everything I have is on his side. You make a move. I'll be on his camp. You try to claim anything, I'm going to be supporting him. This is what we have done as the Christian church. And undivided, full attention and support to the nation of Israel has widened this rift, this gap, this chasm in between the two children of Abraham to a point that we have to undo so much that we have just blindly taken in and accepted as fact, now we have to undo a whole lot of this. And one of the things we have to undo is this. God has also blessed Ishmael, and we're not competing for who is the son of the promise. That has nothing to do with that. The Messiah came, and when he came, the message of the Messiah has to go to both. And both have to respond. And I will get into this, who's responding and who is not. I will, keep, I will bring this to your attention, and let's see what we can come up with. According to the scriptures, the descendants of Ishmael, the children of the east, specialized in trading. So they were cosmopolitan merchants. They traveled the then-known world, leaving behind traces of Abrahamic faith everywhere they went, even in the heart of the most ultra-pagan society. Let me give you one example. Are you familiar with the word, with the term Syrophoenicians? Do you remember an incident when Jesus took a handful of his disciples, secretly, according to the scriptures, went out of Israel. One time in his ministry, he left Israel. And this is it. He took a few handful of his disciples and he left Israel and went to a territory called Tyre and Sidon, which is today's Lebanon. All right? Then there was this incident between the Lord and this Syrophoenician Greek Canaanite woman. That's as pagan as you can get. And there was this incident at this house that Jesus was staying. We all know the story. Syrophoenician Greek Canaanites had 700 plus gods that they worshipped and venerated every day. One of the gods that these Syrophoenicians worshipped, his name is E-L. Does that sound familiar? That's the root prefix name of God in the Bible. Where did they come up with that? Another God that they worshipped among the 700 gods, his name was Sha'id or Shi'id. I'm not exactly how it's pronounced. Shi'id or Sha'id. Now you would say, who is this God? The Syrophoenician pagans 
believed that there would come a prince that will deliver them from the venom of the snake. Where did that come from? And you know who was, for the most part, in contact with these Syrophoenician pagans? Was a descendant of Ishmael and Keturah. Did they affect it? That's why when this pagan woman came to Jesus, she called him what? Son of David, have mercy on me. An exquisite exchange went back and forth. If I have time at the end, I will address it. But what Jesus told her, this, this interaction that went back and forth between Jesus and this woman, Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. I'm eating with the children first. In this picture, who is the lost sheep? This pagan woman or the Jewish disciples that were with him? Jesus said, I am here with the lost sheep of Israel. She already knew who he was. She called him son of David. That is the highest prophetic name that Jesus has ever had in Israel. To this day, Israel does not refer to him as son of David. But we'll get to that a bit later. So far, we've looked at the past. We have seen the present, how God keeps his promise. 1.7 billion, that's an excellent way to keep a promise. Now, my question is, does God have a plan for the descendants of Ishmael in the future? Does he have a plan for them in the future? The answer to this will decide what strategy the Adventist church will employ to reach out to the Muslims, okay? According to the scriptures, and we're going to read in the most awkward place of the scriptures, we're going to read from the pen of Isaiah. In my humble opinion, he is the cream of all prophets of the Bible. Isaiah 60, verses 6 and 7, but let me give you a little backdrop. The background of this Isaiah is describing a scene around the throne of God in the future. Okay? Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, is describing a scene around the throne of God in the future. And let's see what this passage says. Isaiah 60, verses 6 and 7. I'm pretty sure many of you have read this passage. Great caravans of camels will come from Midian and Ephah. They will come from Sheba bringing gold and incense. People will tell the good news of what the Lord has done. All the sheep of Kedar and Nebaioth will be brought to you as sacrifices and offered on the altar to please the Lord. The Lord will make his temple more glorious than ever. This is a futuristic, prophetic language that Isaiah, the prophet of all prophets, is describing around the throne of God. There's a bunch of names up there. I'm just going to concentrate for now, and then the rest in, in a bit later on. I'm just going to co concentrate on these two names. All the sheep of Kedar and Nebaioth will be brought to you as sacrifices and offered on the altar to please the Lord. The Lord will make his temple more glorious than ever. Around the throne of God, in the future, Kedar and Nebaioth are offering their sacrifices to God. And the Bible says God is pleased with their sacrifices. Who in the world are Kedar and Nebaioth? And the answer is where? 1 Chronicles 1.29. Nebaioth was Ishmael's firstborn son. Kedar was his second. 
Where are they? Around the throne of God. When? In the future. But this is very ironic. Jewish prophets, we Christians, are always used to hearing Reuben, Benjamin, David, all the tribes of Israel, right? But in this passage, in the future, Isaiah is saying, I saw the descendants of Ishmael around the throne of God. By the way, sorry, Midian and Ephah are the children of Keturah. So in other words, what Isaiah is telling us, I saw the children of the east around the throne of God. Question. Well, before the question. 740 years after Isaiah, Jesus came to this earth. Jesus said, there's one condition anyone can enter into the kingdom of God. What is the condition? No one will come to the Father except through me, right? That pretty much closes the case. Isaiah, 740 years before Jesus, he says, I saw the descendants of Ishmael around the throne of God. Jesus comes and says, no one will come to the Father except through me. Put these two together. What is the conclusion? They will be, there will be a gathering of his descendants, Ishmael, in heaven. And who will be the cause of them being there? And how will they come to Jesus? How does anyone come to Jesus? God is giving us his win-win strategy. I saw them around my throne. Go preach to them. Enough listening to CNN and Fox News. Have we looked at it from this perspective? No. It's been there all along for over 3,500 years. And it has been there in the last 170 years since we came on the scene. Muslims have referred to the Advent body as the people of the book. And we need to do things by the book. The book says, I saw them around my throne. Go share the message with them. Let's move on. Quickly, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Then they separated, but they joined again, we discovered yesterday, at Abraham's passing. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, he was saved by Ishmaelite and Midianite traders, children of the east. Moses fled Egypt after 40 years. He needed to undo all that 40 years of learning at Pharaoh's palace. How did God do it? He took him to the house of Jethro, who was a son of the east, and we'll discuss, we discussed it yesterday in Midian. This is where Paran is. This is where Ishmael settled. This is where Midian settled. And this is the whole thing, the whole paradigm, this whole sector is called the children of the east, according to the scriptures. Let me show you some other pictures. This is the satellite imagery of Mount Sinai, Jebel al-Musa, is what Arabs call it, the mountain of Moses. You see these dark patches? Over 80 miles of burnt rock on this peak. Let me show you a side view. This whole thing is burnt rock. And I showed you some samples yesterday. 
in the picture. There's not a single volcano. The peak, there's two, two sections to the peak, all burnt rock. Why do you suppose it's burnt? We don't know for how many years God's presence, according to the Bible, rested on the peak of this mountain in brimstone and fire. And we see it with our own eyes. About half a mile north of the mountain stands this boulder. It's 80, 80 by 68, 67 feet. I mean, if it landed here, we wouldn't be here. It's a huge sight to behold. Smooth rock. Through the cracks, everything, and half a mile radius. Smooth rock in the middle of the desert. What is that description of? Water. The water, the whole thing is smooth. So that means the whole thing was gushing with water. Let me show you a side view. It has no earthly business being here. Look at it. Look at this. The Bible says they drank from it for who knows how many years. And that rock, Paul said, was who? Jesus. It's all in Saudi Arabia. It's all in Saudi Arabia. You know, about a mile further northwest, the Bible says there were palm trees, 72 palm trees. In that section, nine are still standing. The Bible says they dug 12 wells for each tribe of Israel. Three still have water in it. 3,500 years later, they still have water in it. The person who does all this work and as a member of my congregation, came to the Adventist faith by finding this in Saudi Arabia. And he said, if you guys have said this for all this time, then God must be speaking to your church. So he and his family joined our church. Move on. Hebrew children erected the tabernacle. The Bible says they purchased their anointing oils and spices from the traders of the east. Forty years of wa wandering in the desert is over. They're about to enter Canaan. How many from the fighting generation entered Canaan? Do you remember? Two. Who were they? According to the scriptures, Joshua is a Hebraic name. Yahshua means God, God saves or God's power saves. But to this day, the Bible doesn't go further than Kenizzites when it comes to Caleb. Kenizzites are a descendant of Midian, a descendant of Ishmael. Caleb is an Arabic word meaning dog. The Bible says Caleb was faithful to Moses and to Joshua. Isn't this incredible? When the time came to inherit the promised land, one from the descendant of Isaac and one from the descendant of Ishmael, they entered the promised land. Move forward. Remember Balaam? The Bible says he's a descendant of the east. Ellen White said he is a descendant of Ishmael. Balaam is the first prophet in the Bible that prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. He had some issues. He had some money addiction issues. But isn't this interesting? The first prophet that ever prophesied about the coming of the Messiah is from the east. Balaam. Move on. Suleiman is the Arabic pronunciation of Solomon, was visited by Queen of Sheba. Traditionally, for a long time, we were told that Sheba is somewhere in Ethiopia. I'm sorry, but there is no evidence of it, just like many other claims that Christians have made. Sheba, it's today called Sabah, is in the southern tip of Saudi Arabia in the country of Yemen. 
that the war between Houthis and, and, and the Shiites are going on right now. It's in the Civil War. And finally, 2,000 years after Abraham, the Messiah of Israel. When Jesus was born in Israel, what did his own people do? Nothing. The best that they wanted to do was to kill him. Who cared instead? Bunch of people that we will never allow in our churches. The Bible calls them wise men from where? The Bible has another name for them, magis, all right? That's where we get the word magic and magician from. Isn't this incredible? Israel had the Torah, the law, the prophets, the sanctuary, the visions, everything. But when the Messiah came, they were all. The Messiah is born. Who paid attention? A bunch of pagans over a thousand miles away looked at the skies over Israel and they said, that's a star. We know it. We're astrologers. We're astronomers. We're soothsayers. We're palm readers. We know all this. The star don't move. There's got to be something to it. Took them two years to find out what is going on. The Bible says, when the Magi's came to Israel, they went to Herod's palace. This is at the time of Rome. And those of you who know something about Herod the Great, the guy was a lunatic. He killed three of his own sons with his own hands. He was afraid they're after his throne. This guy had no mercy on anybody. But when the Magi's walk into the palace, he's behaving like a good schoolboy. Where is the king of kings? King of kings. Knowing Herod, he would have said, I am the king of kings. What do you mean? But instead, he says, hold on a sec. He goes to the scribes. What is this all about? Yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, he's born in Bethlehem. What else do you want? His address. We don't have it. We'll find it. Would you please let me know when you find his address? I'd love to come and worship him. <laughs> Brought him the gifts. You know, every nativity scene that we put on in our churches, we always have the shepherds on one side, and we have the magis. Three magis. The Bible never says there were three. What we know by now, spending over 20 years of my life studying the history of Near East, we know one thing. Magis, not only they were not three, they traveled in four to five hundred, sometimes over a thousand. They had their troops, their archers, their foot soldiers, their bankers, everything traveled with them. They were such a sight to behold, they were so powerful, did not need a single entry visa to any country. <laughs> they came to Jesus and they gave him these mysterious gifts. And on the way back, the angel appeared to them. Don't go back to Herod. Take another freeway, right? Herod found out. What did he do? The Bible says he gave orders to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and surrounding towns. What age and under? Matthew says, according to the calculations he received from the Magi's. Two years, the son of the living God is among them. His own people don't know it. Who knows it? Bunch of people will never allow in our churches. Pagans. If this happened on the first advent, can it happen on the second advent? Can we learn something from this? You know what I learned? 
I have other sheep that are not in this sheep pen. I will bring them in also. Sometimes, I'm sorry, I love my church, but I have to be honest. Sometimes we reflect Israel very meticulously. It's all about us. We're the only fish in the pond. And God says, I beg of you, look at what I have done in the past. If I've done it in the past, I will do it again in the future. Are you with me? <laughs> or you want to create your, invent your own wheel? So one of the things we are discovering is this. Sometimes people outside of God's realm are more attentive to what God is doing than his own people. Can we learn from this? Let's move on. Before I take, well, before I start this second session, up to this point, are there any more questions? Up to this point. And, and direct your questions to the subject. Don't jump ahead because I might be covering it in the future. Go ahead. Can we get a microphone? Can we get a, another microphone to hear the question? Please. Thank you, Pastor. Hold on. No. Oh, yeah. question is, and I think, I don't know if you'll cover this or not, but just say we are talking to Muslims and they accept Jesus. Um, and you know how Paul talks about them being grafted in to the Israel? Would that be a problem if we talk, start talking about Israel? You know how Paul talks about... If we do it in the current context yeah, that we're used to? Absolutely. You know absolutely. If we, by the, by the current mindset and worldview that we have, I'm sorry, but it's going to backfire on us. Hold off on that. I'm going to cover that in the second session. Are there any more questions? My question is about the Quran. So you Keep your questions directed to what us. You brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Second, in the second section, I will cover that. So based on what I covered in the first section, are there any questions? Yes. You said that uh, no one, Ishmael was the only one that was named before birth. Do you think Ishmael was before birth? No, Ishmael is the first one. Ishmael is the first one. I know. He was yeah. there also. Yeah, there's no question. But I just said the first time it happened in the scriptures, it's Ishmael. Okay, there's one of these other ones. Okay. Uh, and uh, well, Ishmael was uh, of the flesh, and Jesus was of the promise. Uh, yeah, you see, at the very beginning, I... I set the stage. We're not here. We're not here to compare that. We're not here to compare the child of the promise of Jesus. Uh, let's see. And will God use anyone as a king? Absolutely. Well, he used the enemy to notify the, to the demoniac. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Any other questions? And around the throne in heaven, there will be some of all people. Verses from Catholics, well, I think. I know, but what we what we want to cover is the paradigm that has been overlooked. And will be there the twelve gates in New Jerusalem named after the twelve tribes of Israel? Uh, if the scripture says there is, there will. Okay. Any other questions? 
Let me go to the second clip. Let me go to the second section. This second section, we're going to read passages from the Quran and what the Quran says about the Bible, what it says about the prophets of the Bible, and what it says about Jesus. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've, if, if you've experienced this. If you give a Christian tract or a Bible to a Muslim, I don't know how many of you have, uh, have had this experience. Muslims, in general, are not comfortable in taking anything that has Christian material, Bible, or anything like this. One of the factors that contributes to this is most well-meaning Muslims are under the impression that Christians have corrupted the Bible. So who knows what's in the original Bible, in the real true Bible, so why would I endanger my soul to a book that has been corrupt? And the Christian church and the world of Islam have been arguing and arguing, proving evidence. We have proved millions, hundreds of thousands of evidence of parchments and archaeological evidence. It still doesn't do it. The Quran, in my humble opinion, takes care of this situation. Look at what it says. So we'll be reading from the scriptures. You're familiar with this. And when in doubt, when in confusion, talk to the people of the book, which we discovered was the Bible. Look at some of these passages. Those that have faith and keep from evil shall rejoice both in this world and in the next. The word of Allah cannot be changed. That is a supreme triumph. And the word of your Lord was fulfilled, a true promise. There is no altering his words. He is all hearing and all knowing. The Quran tells 1.7 billion Muslims, God's word will not change, cannot change, because he is all hearing and all knowing. No one can change God's word. To give you an idea what it means, I'll put some examples. We gave Moses and Aaron the criterion, meaning the law, and the light and a remembrance to the godly. The Quran tells Muslims, God gave Moses and Aaron the law. Is that a true statement? We revealed the book of remembrance, and we are its protectors. The book of remembrance in the Quran is referring to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is a memorization, a reminding of Israel of, of everything that they were supposed to know. And the Quran refers to that book as remembrance. Now, I have a question for you. Do you notice anything peculiar about these two verses? So, is we a plural or singular? Does the God of the Bible refer to himself as plural? Come, let's create man in. And right the next verse, the Bible says, and in his image he created the male and female. The God of the Quran goes back and forth between plural, singular, plural, singular. To this day, Muslims cannot explain how this could be. Who do they need to explain it to them? The people of the book. Let me move on. Sure. One scripture before. Right before this? Okay. 
by the way. Quran is chapters and verses, chapters and verses. And chapters have also names. In this case, chapter 10 is also called Yunus. Yunus in Arabic is Jonah. Okay? So Jonah was one of, is one of Islam's prophets. Is that okay with you? If they call him Jonah? Okay. Keep that. You'll see more of that a bit later on. Let me move. Look at this passage. All you who believe, believe in Allah, God, and his messenger, Muhammad, and the book he revealed to his messenger, the Quran. Radical Islam, including ISIS, close the Quran at this junction. As they get to this part, they close the book. And they chase and pursue all the enemies. Do you profess Allah? Do you profess Muhammad? Do you profess Quran? No, beheaded. Yes, you're with us. About a, about a year ago in Pakistan, a Sharia judge, Sharia means the law of the straight way. And it's based, founded on the law of Moses. If you want to know from now on what Sharia law means, it's the law of Moses implied and applied in Arabic and Islamic context. But it's based on the law of Moses. A Sharia judge in Pakistan said, I will not recite this verse at the beginning of my court sessions. He said, if I am not allowed to read the whole thing, otherwise I don't want to quote it, I don't want to recite it. Taliban and the radical Islam groups in Pakistan sued this Sharia judge, imprisoned him for about six months, but he was a judge. He took the case to the Supreme Court in Pakistan. And he said, as a Muslim judge, I am supposed to read the whole passage, not just portions of it. He won his case. He's back into court jurisprudence. Now guess what happens in the second half of this passage? And the book he revealed beforehand. What is this book? The Bible. And whoever disbelieves, now look at this. This is the creed of Islam. Whoever disbelieves in Allah, his angels, his books, his messengers, and the last day, he is the one that is infidel, kafirun in Arabic. The infidel is the one who rejects this. Guess what radical Islam does? Takes a portion out. Radical extremism works the same all across the board. No matter if you're in Islam or if you're in Christianity. You take it out of its context, you can build your own religion. Taking it out of the context is what is happening with the world of radical Islam. And I will address it in the last part. Taking things out of context is, has the same price, same consequences all over the world. Did you know automobiles are mentioned in the Bible? Did you know that? Hondas are mentioned in the Bible. The Bible says the disciples were all in one accord. <laughs> That's called extremism. That's called extremism. Look at this. And he revealed the book to you in truth, confirming what is in his hand. He revealed the Torah, which is the Arabic pronunciation of Torah, and the Injil beforehand, and the Gospels beforehand. Injil is the word for gospel in Arabic. For what reason? For guidance to people. And he revealed the criterion, meaning the law of Moses. Those who reject the signs of God, meaning these, 
have a strong punishment and God is strong and avenging. This is written to Muslims. It's not written to us. It's written to Muslims. God is telling Muslims, God has revealed his word through the Torah, through the Gospels, and through the law. Whoever goes against these will face God's judgment. Criteria is another word for the law. Then we brought Moses the book. Moses' name is mentioned 98 times in the Quran. Jesus' name is mentioned between 31 to 38 times, depends on the version. Muhammad's name is mentioned three times, and it's always in parentheses. So the Quran mentions more Moses and Jesus than actually the name of the Prophet of Islam. Look at what it says. We brought Moses the book, meaning whatever Moses wrote. Technically, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Later on, were completed by Ezra and Nehemiah. He wrote ten psalms. Moses wrote ten of the psalms. And most scholars believe he wrote the book of Job. So just imagine, the Quran is saying, whatever Moses wrote is complete for him who does good. Explanation of everything and the guidance and mercy so that they might believe in a meeting with their Lord. Muslims are told the explanation of everything is in the writings of Moses. Quran never rewrites the parts of the Moses. It always says it's written, go read it. They're very efficient, the people who compile the Quran. Very efficient. They never rewrite passages of the Bible. It always says it's there, go read it. Look at the next passage. We preferred some prophets above others. We brought David a Zabur. Zabur is the Arabic word for the Psalms. David is a preferred prophet for Muslims. We made Isa, son of Maryam. Isa is the Arabic word for Jesus. Son of Maryam, Mary, follow them, meaning follow the prophet. A confirmer of the Torah in his possession. The Quran says Jesus confirmed the Torah. Is that a true statement, yes or no? And we brought him the Injil. What is the Injil? Your Arabic is improving. In which, in which, meaning in the Gospels, in which is guidance and life, confirming the Torah in his possession and the guidance and sermon to the pious. The Quran is telling Muslims, guidance and the way to piety is if you do what the Gospels say. And we inspired you, meaning Muhammad, just as we inspired Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, Job, Jonah, Aaron, Solomon, David. That's almost the entire Bible. The Quran says they were all inspired. Whatever they wrote, no one can change, no one can alter. And look at what it says up here. Those we sent before you were men to whom we inspired. So God is telling Muslims, all those who came before Muhammad, they were inspired. And so ask the people of the Book of Remembrance if you don't know the clear signs and songs. So far, I have one question for you. Based on what it is, this is not by any means exhaustive. Based on what you've seen, does the Quran honor the Bible or does it dishonor it? Is that what you see on the outside world? Islam, in the religion of Islam, according to the Quran, Muslims have 25 prophets. How many? 
24 are from the Bible. Look at this. English, Spanish, and Arabic for those who can read. I'll read the list of the prophets, and then I will ask you a question. These are the prophets of Muslims, 1.7 billion. Adam, Enoch, Noah, Heber, Methuselah, Abraham, Lot, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Jethro, Moses, Aaron, Ezekiel, David, Solomon, Elias, Elisha, Jonah, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Jesus. If I stop there, what religion am I describing? Come on, what religion is this describing? Christianity. We have one more. Muhammad, what did we do? What have we done? We've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. No, he is not supposed to be there. Wait, wait a minute. What is 24 out of 25? What percentage is that? 96% of the prophets of Islam are your prophets. You want to know what the Quran says about Jesus? This is what it says about Jesus. These are the chapters and the verses in the Quran, and these are the corresponding verses from the New Testament. I'll read the list, and I'll ask you a question. This is what the Quran says about Jesus. Jesus, the son of Mary, he is the Messiah, servant of God, prophet, apostle of God, word of God, word of truth, spirit of God. He's a witness, mercy from God, sign for all people. He is great. He is righteous, meaning without sin. He is holy. He's blessed. He gives life. He did miracles, was led by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, guides people to truth, healed people, raised the dead, would die for unbelievers, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven after death, is coming again. Which one of these conflicts with what you know about Jesus? Are we dealing with an enemy? Yes, if you don't know the truth. Question. Does the Quran honor the Bible, yes or no? Does it honor the prophets of the Bible? Does it honor Jesus? Do they know enough about Jesus on Quran to experience salvation, in your opinion? What do you think? S means surah, in Arabic means chapter. It means chapter. No, we don't go back in this business, <laughs> man. We move forward, man. <laughs> there you go. Question. When did you come here at this session? Okay, we covered it. Those, those of you who were attentive, what did the Quran say? Does, does the word of God change or no? no. Can anyone change it? No. Can Christians change it? No. The, the passages are there. I'll be more than happy to share it with you. Excellent. And this is what I want to, are you done with this? With this? So I want to bring it to here. First, I want to ask three questions, and then I will answer your question. It will, it, it will be time for the question and answer right after this. So far, how many of you sitting here knew about this? prior to this? Two hands go up. How many of this is the first time you're seeing this? 
How many of you think this is significant for us to know? How many of you think we should act upon this right now? Okay. Hold on to your question. I promise I'll start with you. But here's my question. Why don't they? Why don't they come to faith in Jesus? Why don't they pick up the Bible and read it? For the same reason we Christians didn't for 1,200 years. Unless you speak in Latin, God is not going to understand. Muslims are told, unless you do everything in Arabic, even if you don't understand it. Which brings me to my, an incident I had with a diplomat, an Indonesian diplomat. Delightful lady. I was at a conference. We were eating. She was sitting across from me. We talked about the religions and all this. So I kind of, I got kind of cocky, I would say. I said, you say you're traveling every, every day you're on a plane and you're a diplomat and you're a devout Muslim. She said, yes. I said, how do you pray five times a day? She kind of chuckled and she said, I can't. Three is maximum that I do. I said, okay. What language do you do your supplications and prayer? She said, Arabic, of course. I said, but you're Indonesian. Do you speak Arabic? No. The Turkish gentleman sitting next to us came to rescue the day. He's, he kind of barged in and he said, my sister, we're Muslim. You're supposed to know Arabic. From his accent, I can tell he didn't l speak a lick of Arabic himself. <laughs> he says, you're supposed to know Arabic. It's our language. She got ticked off. You don't want to you know, mess with a diplomat woman, <laughs> Muslim. She kind of pushed her chair back and she said, what? You want me to learn Arabic now? I'm 56 years of age. You want me to learn Arabic? No, thanks. God understands it. I don't need to understand it. Eighty-two percent of Muslims around the world don't come from Arabic backgrounds. But they are told to do your supplications, your du'as, your prayers in Arabic. Otherwise, God does not listen. History is repeating itself. Islam is going through the same dark ages as we did over 1,200 years. We don't want to give in 1,200 years. You deprive them from the scriptures, you got them. Islam around the world honors, reveres the Quran, but most Muslims follow what is known as hadith or the traditions. Does that remind you of another group of people? Traditions. You know, I have, I have a lot of Jewish friends. And so many people say, this is odd. You're working in Muslims, but you have a lot of Jewish friends. I do, because I want to practice what I preach. <laughs> a Jewish rabbi one time said, we Jews, we follow tradition. And when tradition comes closer to the sense, we follow tradition. Tradition for Jews is what is known as the Talmud. Talmud is the writings of the, of, of the rabbis and the teachers. 
I have read scriptures, dozens of them in the Talmud, that it says the writings of the Talmud supersede that of the writings of Moses. Does that remind you of somebody else? Christians have the Bible, but follow for the most part tradition. Jews have the Torah, but for the most part follow tradition. Muslims have the Quran, but they follow tradition. The people of the book should bring all these Abrahamic faiths back to the scriptures. You bring them back to the scriptures, our mission is fulfilled. You see, so far, if you think about it, would you say that we've been deceived? What and how does deception work? Little truth, the rest, tradition. Tradition and tradition. Questions? Let's make it quick. I have one last section. I know it's going to go past 15, but at 5.30, I will. There's a gentleman there. Did you, did you question before? No, no, but did you ask your question before, today? You haven't asked any questions. Go ahead, because I, I want to give the turn to, to people who haven't asked the question. Go ahead. Supposedly we have a problem talking to Muslims about the Messiah, like Jesus. If they have all this stuff, why the problem? See, here's the thing. French philosopher Blaise Pascal, some of you are familiar with him, genius of a prophet, of a, of a philosopher. He has famous quotes, one of his quotes. History teaches us one thing, that we never learn anything from history. We're seeing it. We're seeing it. Muslims follow tradition. Messiah has huge implications in the Bible, not just the title. Huge implications. Wouldn't you say this is miraculous what they already believe about Jesus? Now, I want to ask you a tough question before the question. Sorry to keep you, you know, hanging your head. You see all this? This is what Muslims believe about Jesus. All right? The nation of Israel today, which we Christians, government, and everybody is supporting undivided support from some estimates, this is what I know, between 20 to $40 million cash every day assistance to Israel. You know how much of this do our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel accept? None. We call them friends. 1.7 billion Muslims that believe all this about Jesus, we call them the enemy. And we act accordingly. Any questions? Yes, there are questions. The lady in there. We need, oh, she, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay, see you're on the right track, but here's what I love to do. Instead of me answering it, I want to help the audience. I want the audience's help. The question was posed, why are they so evil? Is that a right way 
to put. Is that a, hold on, hold on. Is that a correct way to summarize and to conclude about Islam? According to the world, you're absolutely right. How about according to the word that we've discussed so far from the scriptures, from the Bible, and from the Quran? Would you consider them evil? Then why the atrocities? Now here's the point. I want to be as redemptive as possible. There are 1.7 billion Muslims around the globe. Those who pretty much engage in militancy, and I listen, and I have statistics till here from both sides, anywhere between 1 to 1.2%. 99%, don't engage. Plus, 99% of the victims of radical Islam happen to be Muslims. Okay? Now here's where I want to tie everything together. Hold on to your question. This is what I want to tie the whole thing together. Okay. Sure. This is a very bold statement. I will be here as long as you want me to answer your questions, and I'll also be available for stoning if you wish to, you know, in the parking lot. As a minister and as a missionary and as a servant of the Lord and as someone who loves Muslims to death, because I want to see them in the kingdom. This is my conviction, and this is not only my conviction. Many people that I have interviewed and I have learned from. This is a conclusion. The purpose of Islam coming on the scene is two. Islam was raised to guard the Bible and to guard the true church. And how do you find this out? you look in the pages of the Quran. The Quran holds Christians and Jews accountable. You had your scriptures, but you don't follow what you read in the scriptures. Muhammad says in the Quran numerous times, I did not come to begin a religion. I simply came to warn. We have archaeological ruins outside of Jerusalem. I have been a astute fo follower of Dr. Fred Doner, He's, he's an archaeologist. He's not a religious man. If you get a chance, watch some of his, some of his material on YouTube. Fred Doner. He says, we have found, they were shown pictures. We found ruins outside of Jerusalem. These are prayer centers, worship places, small. Christian altar on one side, Muslim mehrab, which is the equivalent to the altar, on side by side. There is no wall in between them, and there's a baptistry at the entrance. We cannot categorize this with exception. At one point in time in history, Muslims and Christians worshiped in the same place. Worshiping the same God with a baptistry. I firmly believe Islam did not come to ruin, but just like all the great Abrahamic faiths, it had excellent beginnings. Muhammad single-handedly emptied Kaaba, or Mecca, of idol worship. We might not think much of it. What he did 
over 1,400 years ago single-handedly will be equivalent to an Adventist walking into the Vatican and doing away with the Vatican papacy system. This is how significant it was with what Muhammad did. Islam had great beginnings, and they protected the Bible. They protected, they were used to protect the Protestant Reformation. Muslim Ottomans loved Martin Luther because he spoke against idol worship and against the papacy. At one point, they were raised to protect the truth because I was reading passages yesterday, one God, Jesus Messiah, and you all said amen to Jesus is coming back. Over a thousand years, you were not hearing the return of Christ in the Christian realm because there were no Bibles and no one was waiting for Jesus to return. In fact, for over a thousand years, the only place that you would read that Jesus was coming back and hearing about his return was the Muslim mosques around the Middle East. Who? Fred Donor, D-O-N-N-O-R. Follow him. I mean, he's one of, one of the many. But I'm just saying is this. Just like Judaism had excellent beginnings, going through the Red Sea, manna every day, cloud covering them by night, by day, fire by night, the commandments, everything. What happened to Judaism? Christianity, <coughs> excellent beginnings, miracles, raising of the dead, the gospel, millions being killed, nothing was stopping the church. What happened? How, how far you have fallen, return back to your own first love. All the seven churches that we read are giving us a clear description of what happened to Christianity, took a dip as soon as it became political. Judaism took a dip as soon as it became political. Guess what happened to Islam? Excellent beginnings, but when things got political, when power got involved, territory got involved, look what it got to us. Now, I want to finish with three slides, and I'll be here for as long as you want me to. As Adventists, again, I am not in any way, shape, or form talking about titles. Which title do you, be do you belong? Which title do you profess? None. But as Adventists, who do you think will influence the other in this picture, ultimately? As Adventists, again, some of the things I say might not be popular anymore, even in Adventism. But I still believe, as someone who does everything based on evidence, I still believe the enemy of the gospel and of God's true church is still the same enemy. Under the same guise of Christianity, but it's all pointing the fingers at the wrong enemy, Islam. Islam, in my humble opinion, has been hijacked. And if we sit still idle, it will be hijacked by the same culprit. Let me give you the core of it. If you've noticed, I've mentioned Protestant Reformation a couple times. When the Roman Church wanted to destroy, was bent on destroying the Reformation, one of the tactics that they used 
they commissioned two high-ranking cardinals that belonged to the Society of Jesus that later on, later on became known as the Jesuit Society. The two cardinals, Cardinal Ribera and Cardinal Alcazar, were commissioned by the Roman Church to debunk the Reformation because they were tired, sick and tired of being called the Antichrist by Martin Luther and all the founders of Protestant Reformation. They were sick of it. So they turned to their cardinals and said, come up with alternative interpretations of the book of, of Daniel, of Revelation. We're sick of being called the Antichrist. Cardinal Alcazar came up with a proposal. He says, I have read and studied the book of Revelation and the prophets. Protestants don't, even know, don't know what they're talking about. There's not going to be any Antichrist. The Antichrist and the notion of Antichrist died with Nero, Emperor Nero. And when Nero died, so died the whole the notion of Antichrist. There's not going to be any Antichrist. Reformers don't know what they're talking about. The Roman church looked at it. No, it couldn't hold water. They turned to Cardinal Ribera. Cardinal Ribera came up with a proposal, and he said, I've studied the book of Revelation, and my understanding is the first four chapters deal with church age. The remaining 18 chapters will take place when the church is being caught up to heaven. So the remaining 18 chapters, we don't even need to know. We don't even need to read. That's when the Antichrist will appear in the future when the church is caught up. The Roman church liked what they were hearing. They began publishing it, printing it, propagating it. Protestants got a hang of it. They mocked it off, ridiculed it, laughed it off. Five centuries later, they bought the whole thing wholesale. Now they call it the secret rapture theater. So you know who the architect is. We're not the Antichrist. The Antichrist will come in the future. You know who else has bought in? to this corrupt end-time scenario? Radical Islam. In specific, ISIS. I know this is kind of sickening, but ISIS has a theology. They believe, ISIS believes that it's the end-time movement to bring the world to its end. So they call themselves the end-time movement among Islam. We call them ISIS because they're English acronyms, but the actual acronym is Daesh, meaning Dolat al-Islamiyya Sham al-Iraq, meaning the Islamic Caliphate or the governance of Iraq and Syria. They have a theology, and their theology is this. They believe that the armies of Rome will ultimately defeat them. Now, who is the armies of Rome? ISIS believes that the armies of the ally, the, this whole allegiance of United States and Europe, NATO, are governed and ordered by the Church of Rome. There's a nugget of truth to this. August 7, 2014, I was in ASI Grand Rapids. I remember exactly where I was standing when I was watching the news. August 7, 2014, the Pope, Francis, made an encyclia and an order. He invited and challenged United States and the Allies to intercede on behalf of the Yazidis that were brutally, savagely killed by ISIS in northern part of Iraq. That was 7th of August 2014. 
Less than 24 hours later, on August 8th, United States and the Allies began a bombing campaign against ISIS that has lasted to this minute. ISIS calls this whole thing as armies of Rome. They believe that the armies of Rome will ultimately destroy them. But they believe they will do the destruction when the Antichrist will rise from the country of Iran. ISIS believes the Antichrist will be a Shia Muslim. Shiites believe the Antichrist will be a Sunni Muslim. This is why the bloodletting, the bloodshed. They believe the Antichrist rising from Iran, even they have the city, city of Khorasan in the northeastern corner of Iran. They believe the Antichrist will lead the armies of Rome to put the death nail in the coffin of ISIS. As that is about to happen, they believe Jesus and his armies will descend from heaven in the city of Damascus. They believe Jesus will lead his armies to the city of Dabiq, right here. And they believe that's where Armageddon will take place. ISIS believes Jesus will destroy the Antichrist. In fact, they believe he will slaughter two-thirds of the world population. And the remaining one-third, he will lead them into Islam. End of end-time scenario according to ISIS. What part of this bothers you? if not the whole thing. But what part of it bothers me? The future coming Antichrist. Look what happens when a radical group among Islam adheres to a corrupt end time scenario. Look at what happens. Last five years, over two million between Syria and Iraq have been killed because of ISIS. Over 280,000 children have been killed. Generations have been wiped out. This is what happens when a corrupt end time scenario gets adopted by a radical group. You know, in English we say a lie circles the globe seven times before truth has any time to put on its wings. And this is exactly what is happening with ISIS. This is what happens when the advent truth which will tell these people, you are not the Antichrist. Your brother, your Muslim brother is not the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not either one of you. You're killing each other in vain. You're bombing Westerners in vain. You're terrorizing Westerners in vain because of a wrong, skewed, corrupt, end time scenario. Do we have a work to do? Now my question to you is this. Would you still consider Islam as your enemy? Because of that 1%, we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. And this is why we're still here. After 170 years, we're still asking why Jesus has not returned. I know Adventist pastors that have left the pulpit because they got so disappointed. Where is Jesus? God has brought all these people to our shores. What we do in North America will replicate, will ripple throughout the world. One of the recommendations I'm making to our churches, to NAD, you know the signs we have out there, such and such church, Adventist church? Why don't you put there, come worship with the people of the book? And some churches are doing it. 
And some churches are calling us now. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, the meeting's coming to a close for those of you that have to leave. Those of you that have questions are not going to come and sit down with Brother Joel and have a personal conversation with him. You're going to come and sit in the chair and everyone's going to hear your questions and he's going to just be like, thank you, Pastor Steve, for helping me. Joel? Sorry? No, his question and answer period will not be recorded. Are they recorded? Yes, if we're recording, yes. So, just a blessing. Go right in the back and turn off the... Uh, Do this work? Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's all stand for a closing prayer.